0: You had that experience of watching a film, uh, and there's some great crisis, perhaps a bomb to defuse, uh, a terrorist to capture, uh, and the hero does it. Okay, the, the wire is cut, and everyone sort of sighs a sigh of relief. Uh, the baddie is captured, and you look at your watch, and you realise, actually, you're only 25 minutes into the film. Uh, you know there must be another crisis coming. You watch one of these box sets, 24, you to, I mean, it's probably out of date now, it? 24, you know, the day in the life of Jack Bauer, 24 episodes. And after about six or seven hours, he's usually done something amazingly impressive, this sort of secret agent of the American government. He's usually captured a baddie, uh, averted a crisis. But you just know there's something else coming, because you're only six hours into a 24-hour <coughs> series it's kind of like that in joseph in one sense the story of joseph is finished you remember it began with him having these dreams where he was promised that one day he would be lifted up uh, that, that he would uh, be raised up above everybody else and become a kind of ruler uh, so he saw that the stars bowing down to him grains of corn bowing down symbolic of himself being raised up and his family bowing down in one sense joseph's story is it's almost finished He's been in the depths, as we said, he's been in prison, but he is now prime minister of Egypt. He's as high as he's going to get. Joseph is, well, Joseph is where God wants him to be. He's not going to get any higher. And yet, this isn't the end of the story. There is more to come. Joseph is God's ruler, for this time at least, and he's in place. He's been betrayed, he's been sold, he's been imprisoned. But he's now in glory. But do you remember how the story of Joseph began? We often think of this last bit of Egypt, of Genesis rather, as the story of Joseph. But that's not quite how the writer of Genesis uh, explains it, or introduces it. In Genesis 37, and verse 2, which is when this whole story begins, the writer says this, These are the generations of Jacob. These are the generations of Jacob, generations of the offspring. Several times in the book of Genesis, you get that little phrase, these are the generations of Adam, or Abraham, or Isaac, or on it goes. It's a clue that we're in the next section of the story. And it's not the generations of Joseph, but of Jacob. That's to say that these stories are not the story just of Joseph, but rather of all 12 brothers. So although Joseph is now kind of okay, rescued in glory, there is still more <coughs> to happen. God needs to rescue the other 11. And so now, for the rest of the story of Genesis, really the camera kind of switches from Joseph in Egypt, pans out, and brings into focus all the family, Jacob and the brothers uh, as well. And in some ways, this is a picture, as we've seen all along, of the way God works, not just in Egypt thousands of years ago, but actually nowadays. The gospel stories tell us about Jesus, who's an even greater Joseph. Jesus... Who began in glory, the one who his father loved, but who came down to earth, humbled himself, became a man, uh, was despised, rejected, sold, betrayed by his brothers, even those closest to him, the disciples, sold by Judas, taken captive by the Romans, thrown not just into a well to be left for dead, but actually killed, crucified, but then raised up by God on the third day and ultimately ascended back into heaven sat at the right hand of the true emperor, God Almighty. And the Gospels in the New Testament tell us that story, don't they? They tell us the story of Jesus. He's coming down and then he's raising back up to glory. But the Bible doesn't finish at the end of John's Gospel, does it? There's an awful lot of the New Testament left. In fact, there's an awful lot of history left. And the story of Acts onwards, right through to our own age, is, if you like, the story of us... Jesus' brothers, brothers and sisters, if you like. It is not enough, in other words, for God the Father to get Jesus, his son, back into heaven. <clears throat> if that was the only point, then he needn't have bothered in the first place, because Jesus was in heaven to start with. He wasn't created at Christmas, was he? He became man at Christmas, but he's always been the son of God. So, so if the only point was to have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit sort of eternally happy together... We needn't bother with any of the story. Now, the point has always been to get the Son back into heaven with a whole bunch of people to praise him. It's a story, if you like, of salvation, of Jesus' church, his people, his brothers and sisters. Uh, we often say the Bible's all about Jesus, and that's true. But it's also about Jesus' people. Think of the way Jesus is described in the New Testament. He's described as a groom. A children, does anyone know what a groom is? What does a groom always have with him? A bride, that's right, a groom's a husband. And you always have a bride. He's described as a shepherd. What does a shepherd look after? (coughs) Who knows what a shepherd looks after? Isaac. Isaac? Sheep, that's right, you can't have a shepherd without sheep, can you? He's described as a head. What's a head always attached to? Well, I'm not going to ask you that one too obvious. A body. You can't have Jesus without his church. And so the rest of the story of Genesis is going to, in part, point us to what God is doing, gathering his church, <laughs> rescuing people to join him in heaven. So let's dive into the story. It's a long one. We're going to break it into three scenes to try and get a uh, grasp on it. The first scene is verses 1 to 5, and it's, it's the crisis in Canaan, we're calling it the crisis in Canaan. There are two problems. I wonder if you notice them. The first one's the obvious problem, verse 2. Uh, there's a famine. And the famine has spread from Egypt to Canaan, where Jacob, the father, and the 11 brothers live. And the danger is, very obviously, they're going to die. The key phrase that's going to come up twice in this passage, verse 2 Go down, says Jacob, buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. How's it going to happen that God's people live and don't die? There's, There's a key theme, if you like, of this passage. How are they going to live and not die? And the brothers are just sat around doing nothing and Jacob's grumpy with them. Why are you sitting there just looking at one another? We're going to starve. There's grain in Egypt. Go and get it. God is going to provide grain, bread, for his people so they don't die. Now do you remember the first people to read these stories, when Genesis was, Genesis was written, the first people to read these stories were the Israelites as Moses wrote them down. Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. The Israelites who were travelling through the desert. Well, there's not a lot of grain, not a lot of bread. So you can imagine them listening up straight away. God has provided food in the past for our forefathers, that the heads of our tribes, when they were in danger of dying. So perhaps he can do it again for us in our own day, they would think. But you can imagine, too, uh, in the story of Genesis 42, what the brothers think when they hear Jacob say, off you go to Egypt. Imagine the reaction. It's like a trigger word, isn't it? Egypt. What do the brothers associate with Egypt? Well, Egypt is a place they betrayed and sent and sold Joseph to. The last place they want to go is Egypt. You can imagine there, their faces flushing, sort of anxious looks, awkward looks at one another. Egypt, the one place we don't want to go. Do you have that in your life? Just, just words that trigger guilt. I, I suspect we all do. Uh, it might be a name of a person, and when you hear their name, you just flush, you remember. Uh, what you said to them, what you did to them. Or, or a place. Or a date. Or an event. Just little trigger words that, that make you cringe. You look back with just with shame at how you behaved, what you did. Then, there, with that person. And even if we're Christians and we, we know our sin has been forgiven, still the, the guilt can flash up in a second, can't it? I remember driving to one part of the country where I, I'd lived and I don't know if I was a Christian or was a Christian, was backsliding, don't know, but I behaved absolutely terribly and I drove up a road and I saw someone, someone hadn't seen for years. I just drove past them, didn't stop, didn't talk, we were just driving, just saw them and instantly, my cheeks flushed and I just remembered all the terrible things that I'd lived in rebellion to Christ back in those days. I think Egypt is that kind of trigger word for the brothers. And that really leads them to the second problem, leads us to the second problem. The first problem is they're going to starve, unless they get grain, get food. But the second problem is, frankly, their sin. the brother's sorted out. It's been a long time since we've seen the brothers. We're over 20 years later. So Joseph, we're told, was 17 when he was sold into slavery, okay, when they committed their crime. And by the time he is raised up to be Pharaoh's right-hand man, he's 30, we're told. Okay, so that's 13 years already. Plus, there have been seven years of famine. Sorry, plenty. Keep getting that wrong. So we must be 20 years at least. And now we're into the famine. So it's probably 21, 22, 23 years since we last met the brothers. Have they changed? Uh, These are the father figures of Israel, the founding figures of God's church. Have they changed? Or are they still scoundrels? Are they repentant, uh, in other words? Uh, And these two problems are related. Because the one who holds the answer to their starvation, their, their life or death, is the one against whom they've sinned. So the big question for the brothers is, has God's ruler, has Joseph, this character that he's put in charge, is his character one of mercy or perhaps anger? Or even just justice? Everything for the brothers is going to hinge on the character of Joseph. So the crisis sets the scene uh, for, the, for most of the action, which takes place in verses 6 to 24. It's our second scene, the encounter in Egypt, verses 6 to 24. Now, it's seems to get lost in the details, so let's just try and get the story straight. Uh, verse 6, they get there, and they bow down. Do you see that? The brothers, minus Benjamin, who's been kept at home because Dad doesn't really trust the other sons. Benjamin is Joseph's full brother. Do you remember Jacob had four wives, or two proper wives and two concubines? Uh, Joseph and Benjamin are full brothers. Share the same mother, Rachel. So he's this new special one. He's kept at home. But the other ten turn up and they bow down. And in verse 9 we're told that Joseph remembered his dream. Remember the dream of the corn bowing? And it's almost fulfilled, isn't it? It's not quite because they're not all there, but it's almost fulfilled. They bow down. Now they've got no idea who he is. He recognises them, verse 7, but they don't recognise him. That's understandable. He's become Egyptian. Egyptians were kind of clean-shaven and... No hair on their heads or their beards. The Israelites would have been covered in hair, hairy beards and all the rest of it. As I said, we're 20 odd years later. And the last person they expect to be the prime minister of Egypt is the little tow rag that they sold into slavery 20 odd years ago. But when he sees 10 brothers from Canaan bowing down, well, he knows who they are. And we're told a bit later on that he even understands them. They assume he doesn't understand because there's an interpreter there. But Of course, Jacob, sorry, Joseph does understand So they bow down. He recognises them. Uh, But in verses 9 through 17, uh, he he accuses them. He accuses them of being spies. We're told he speaks to them roughly. Uh, Egypt had a kind of uh, border with a bunch of forts across the top. They had a vulnerable side. And that the brothers had come down from there. And Joseph says to them, right, you are spies. You've come to check out the nakedness of the land. We're in famine times. And you are clearly sent to check out whether we're vulnerable. You're going to lead an army against us. They deny it, obviously. (coughs) But he makes the accusation again, you're spies, and throws them into jail. And initially his plan is this. Verse 16, you see, the first plan is, I'm going to keep you all in jail, and then I'm going to send one of you back home to get Benjamin, the younger brother. You've told me there's another brother. Okay, you've told me there's one left at home. Let's see if you're telling the truth. I'm going to keep nine of you and send one of you home. And then he chucks them in jail for three days. And on the third day, they're released. The day, they're set free. And he changes the plan. Uh, So verse 19 is the final plan. Verse 19, the plan is, well, the other way round. I will just keep one of you, and it turns out to be Simeon. And I'll send the rest of you back. That's Joseph being kind and merciful. I think 10 of them could carry much more grain than just one of them. Only one of them has to stay. And the other nine, sorry, get to go home. Uh, with all the grain. What's going on? Okay, what was the story about? Why we, what's the story in the Bible? What's it adding to this Joseph narrative? Well, what might Joseph have done? And children, imagine, okay, imagine that your brother or sister, one day when you grew up, took you captive, sold you to be a slave in another country. Smiling. (laughs) One of you thinking. Sold you to be a slave in another country. And then years later, you who'd been the slave grew up and you were Prime Minister of the country and then your two or three, hypothetically, brothers and sisters turned up and said, please will you feed me, I'm starving. What would you feel about your brother or sister who'd sold you to be a slave? Happy with them? Angry with them? Yeah, pretty cross, exactly. Pretty cross. We might think Joseph would be pretty cross, wouldn't we? Okay, 20 odd years separated from his family. Surely he's going to be furious. We might think he's going to throw them in jail or execute them. That would be just. They've traded him as slaves. That was the punishment for slave trading. Or perhaps if we're Christians, we've been around church for a while, we think, well, no, okay, we know the gospel story. Joseph will forgive them, Joseph is going to be merciful. There's going to be great reconciliation. He's going to say, look, you know, I'm a sinner too. We've all received more mercy from God, the Father, than we ever need to show to one another. So because of the mercy I've received from God, I in turn will show mercy to you. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we think of those who sin against us. Maybe that's what Joseph's going to do. I think as Christians, that's probably what we expect him to do. But it's not quite, is it? It's a bit more complicated than that. He doesn't just say... Ha, huh, guys, it's me, and I forgive you. Let's demonstrate the love, the grace of God, and I'll show mercy and forgiveness to you. Now, he is gracious, don't get me wrong. He doesn't execute them. He does provide grain. You see in the story, he provides grain. He also gives them provision, uh, in verse 25, for the journey home, and puts their money back in their sacks. Okay, he is more than the generous to them. They get the grain to help with the famine, and some packed lunches for the journey home, and they don't even have to pay for it. Although they don't realise that. But he doesn't just say, hey, let's forgive and forget. What's he doing? Did you pick up what he's doing in the story? The same word comes twice, I think, is a clue. It's in verse 15 and verse 16, if you have a look down. What is Joseph doing? Well, he's testing them. By this you shall be tested, verse 15. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Verse 16, send one of you, let him bring your brother while you may be confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. Repeated words are often a clue as to what's going on in the passage. Joseph is testing the brothers. Are you now truthful men? Is there truth in you? Have they changed, Joseph wants to know. Are they honest? Has the intervening 20 odd years been used by God to bring them to repentance? Or are they the same old scoundrels they were when they sold him to slavery? Now, why? Why does he do it? Why does he not? Because he is ju- just and merciful. Sorry, he is merciful and forgiving. There is going to be a family reunion. But why does he test them? Why this test first? Why don't we just crack on with a family reunion? I think two reasons... First of all, Joseph knows, because he knows that what's gone before him, he knows the first part of the story of Genesis. Joseph knows that, that his family are God's chosen people. Okay, we often call them the covenant family. They've been given the covenant promises. Covenant is, is the word the Bible uses to describe our relationship with God. As Christians, we often talk about having a relationship with God. You won't find that phrase anywhere in the Bible. Okay, the, the word relationship with God or relationship with Jesus, never there. Because the Bible's word for relationship is Covenant. That's why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Jesus takes the cup and says, This is the new covenant in my blood. It's a new relationship. And throughout Genesis, from Abraham to his son Isaac to his son Jacob, and then to these twelve sons, that the covenant, this relationship that makes them God's special people, has been passed down the generations. They, if you like, at the beginning of the church, New Testament, that's, that, that link is made. Israel, that's the other, other name for Jacob, are the, the church, the people of God in the Old Testament. So, so, so physical survival is not enough. Now Joseph ensures that physical survival happens. He gives them the, the bread. If he didn't do that, if they died, then that would be the end of God's covenant family. You know, the, the, the promise, the family from which Jesus is going to come will be wiped out. So they have to have this physical survival. But there needs to be more. Now I, I don't know how much this is in Joseph's mind, and how much this is just God working through him. I'm not sure we can tell that. But I think what is going on here is that, th- that this testing is being used for the spiritual good, if you like, of the brothers. And that little phrase comes again that we had at the beginning of the passage. Verse 18. Do this and you will live. Okay, Go and get Benjamin, keep your word, and you will live. And... Uh, whole sentence goes on it ends at verse 20 and not die remember jacob said at the beginning go and get bread so we will live and not die joseph says keep your word and you will live and not die the concern here i think is not just with their physical survival but their spiritual are they repentant changed will they just ditch simeon in jail and run that's what they did with joseph take the money and leg it or will they honor their word And there's a second motive too, I think, for Joseph. He knows that the dream isn't quite fulfilled. Verse 9, we're told that he remembers the dreams, the dreams of the 12 brothers, or sorry, yeah, the 11 brothers, as they would be, and and his mum and dad bowing down before him. The sun, moon, and the stars bowing down before him. He remembers them, but there's people missing in the scene that we see in Genesis 42 one brother, and his dad, and his mum. Now, his actual mum, by the way, Rachel, who was his actual mum, died in childbirth with Benjamin. So I think he's thinking with the dreams, not so much of Rachel, who's dead, but Leah, Rachel's sister. Jacob ended up marrying two women. Long story, which we won't get into now. It was a surprise to him. But Leah becomes essentially the mum of her nephews as well. And so therefore, Joseph knows when he just sees ten brothers bowing down, that the dream isn't fulfilled. God's word hasn't yet come true. He knows God's word must come true. And so he knows they're not at the end of the story. They need this whole family reconciliation. This isn't the end. And he's not going to stop until his whole family are gathered back together. So, so what? Okay, A nice family story, but so what for us? Why doesn't Jesus, once you become a Christian, just whisk you off into heaven? Okay, why isn't it the case that as soon as you repent and believe, you get sucked off to, to glory. You are forgiven fully when you repent and believe. Okay, you put your trust in Jesus. He died in your place. He lived the life he should have lived. So as soon as you have faith in him, that's it. You're saved. You're safe. So why doesn't God just end the story there and just sort of, I don't know, suck you up into heaven? Could have done it that way, but he doesn't, does he? Many of you will have been Christians for months, years, decades perhaps. What does he use that time for? Why, to put it another way, has he not come back yet? Why have we not reached the end scene in Jesus' life? We know what the end scene will be. It'll be like Joseph. Jesus will be lifted up on the throne of heaven, and around him will not just be 12 people bowing down, but more than can be counted. Read the book of Revelation. John says, I saw a number beyond counting. Every tribe, tongue, and nation bowing before him. What's this in-between period for? Well, in part, it is for the testing and trying of God's people. Now, Paul says to the disciples in Antioch that it's through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. We don't walk smoothly home. But why? Just turn with me, to the, give a finger in Genesis 42, but turn with me to the book of James. Almost at the end of the New Testament. It's page uh, 1011, 1011. 1011. 1,011 in the church Bibles. 1,011. Letter of James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, rather than just Mary. So, James 1. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes... Here hear the echoes already, 12 tribes in dispersion. He's not there writing just to Jews. The 12 tribes become the 12 kind of people, the 12 disciples, the 12 uh, divisions, as it were, of the people of God. Symbolically, it's the church. Now, what does he say, verse 2? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. <clears throat> you will meet trials. Almost every New Testament book tells us that. The Christian life will be hard. Sometimes it's hard, it's hard because people persecute you. Sometimes it's hard, often it's hard because of just your own battle with sin. We haven't conquered sin in our lives yet. We've not been made holy, perfectly holy. Sometimes it's hard just because well life is full of grief and sorrow. You'll each have your own battles. Some of us have battles with our physical health, our our mental health, our spirits get get low. We're plagued by anxiety, depression. Some of us just have a terrible time with our families in various ways. But for all of us, whatever those various kinds of trials might be, the trials have a purpose. Do you see they are testing our faith? Verse 3. Not to trip us up, try and trap us so we fall away. But rather, so that as we're put through these trials and tests, it might give us perseverance, steadfastness. And the purpose of that, verse 4, is that we might be made perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now you're not going to become perfect without sin before heaven, but the idea is that it makes you increasingly holy. God uses the tests and trials in your life to make you more like Christ, whatever those trials may be. And verse 12, blessed is the one who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Jesus is a wise ruler. Last week in Joseph's story, we saw that that Pharaoh looked at him and said you have the spirit of God in you and you are wise therefore I'm going to put you in charge of Egypt well Jesus is given the spirit without measure to use the, the language of the book of Acts uh, he is the one full of wisdom and God has put him in charge not just of Egypt or the UK or Europe but the entire universe he is wise and he is directing your life if you're one of his people And therefore, although he will be putting you through trials and tests, it just will happen to you. If it hasn't yet, it will. All of those trials and tests have a purpose. They might feel hard. They will feel hard. But Jesus knows best. He is a kind and loving and wise ruler. And so he's not just making your life a misery for no purpose. It's not that he's lost control, as if he's dropped the wheel of the car and the car's sort of spinning, spiraling off the road. No, he is in control... He is using these tests to transform you ever more into His likeness, so that one day you'll receive that crown of righteousness when you arrive safely home in heaven. In the Joseph story, you come back to like Genesis 42. It actually does these these tests of being put in jail and uh, the stress of having to be sent home begin to produce repentance. Do you see that? Uh, they don't think Joseph can understand. In verse 21 of, of chapter 42, they say to one another, We are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. And Reuben chips up and says, Well, I told you. And Joseph then turns aside and weeps. Of course, he understands. They think he can't understand because the interpreter, but he does understand. He turns aside and weeps. He sees, well, first of all, that Reuben never wanted it to happen in the first place, but he sees too that they are beginning to repent. God's ruler is a merciful ruler. He weeps over his lost people. And like Joseph, Jesus isn't going to leave anyone behind. Remember, Joseph knew it wasn't the end of the story. He wanted the whole family gathered. That's the comfort that goes with the testing. If it was just that we were testing, we might think, well, will I make it? But yes, you will. Our story tells as well. Jesus is not going to leave anyone behind. Like Joseph, he's going to gather the whole flock. The whole people of God will be taken home. He's guiding you through these trials, not as a kind of test to see if you trip up and fall away and then heaven will be a bit quieter, but rather he's guiding you through these trials because these are the path home. And he will not lose you. This is the path he's set for you and he will not lose you. We sometimes ask the question Have you ever asked the question, will will I make it? Will I fall away? Will I lose my salvation? That's completely the wrong question to ask. Turn the question around. And ask yourself this, will Jesus lose a sheep? Will the good shepherd lose a sheep? And as soon as you ask that question, you know the answer, of course he won't. Christ will gather all his people safely home. Your salvation lies in his hands, not yours. Not just your forgiveness, but your perseverance through all these trials. You'll feel weak. As we prayed in the Psalms, you'll feel empty, you'll feel far from him at times, but he will take you safely through them. Whoever you are, our last scene, verses 25 through to the end, we need to be much more quick on. But it's hugely encouraging. Uh, They they get home. En route, one of them's discovered the money. Uh, They give Jacob this semi-accurate report of what happens they're a bit light on the details they don't mention the stuff about being in jail they kind of make it sound like simeon's a bit of a house guest rather than being in prison and in verse 35 when they open the sacks can you can you, can you think what jacob is thinking they come back one sun light and when they open their money in the sack we're told in verse 35 that they see and their father saw the bundles of money and they were afraid and verse 36, Jacob, their father, said to them, "You've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin." What is Jacob thinking? This rings a bell. I remember another time when I sent all my sons out, sort of Egypt direction, and they came back with a load of money, but one son light, with Joseph. Now they've gone off to Egypt again, come back with a load of money, and one son light. Jacob. Jacob thinks they've done it again he's suspicious that actually the whole Joseph thing wasn't an accident as the brothers said and those suspicions are confirmed now Simeon's gone missing and the brothers have come back from Egypt's direction Jacob can sense their guilt I lived with the family once when I was studying out of church work they let me live in their spare room they had a dog called Kulin and um, occasionally I'd be the first home from work and you'd come through the door occasionally look at this dog and the dog would look at you Kulin would look at me and he'd put his head down he'd kind of whine and then he'd go and stick his head under the armchair and you just knew that he'd found some chocolate okay. I didn't need any evidence I hadn't seen the crime happen but I could see from his face and from how he behaved that he was guilty I and mean, that's, that's what's happening here with Jacob and the brothers he, he knows this is the moment he realises that his sons are well they're not innocent but deeply guilty I'm not sure Reuben helps. You know, he, he says, let me take Benjamin, the other son, back. And if I don't come back with him, if you want, Dad, you can kill your two grandsons. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Yeah, that's, it's not really kind of helping family reunion, is it? But Jacob still favours Benjamin, the, the son of Rachel, his favourite wife. And the story ends on a kind of cliffhanger. They're not all sorted out. And that's why it's encouraging, I think. Who are the people that God's ruler, Christ, leads through trials to gather safely home? Terrible people. People like you and me. Think of the brothers. Judah. Judah who slept with his daughter-in-law while she was disguised as a prostitute. That's one of the brothers. Reuben, the eldest, who seems the innocent one here, who slept with his father's concubine, sort of half-wife if you like, slept, that is, with his half-brother's mother. Simeon and Levi, who, early in the story, have slaughtered a whole city of men, having tricked them and then just butchered them. All of them sold Joseph into slavery, then lied about it and dishonoured their father. They are terrible people. And yet they are the ones that God's rule is gathering to form his church through trials and tests. Not the pure ones, not the tough ones who are spiritually on fire and therefore can march through these trials and temptations in their own strength, but the weak, sinful, foolish ones who God is building into his church. Let's finish by going right to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21. This is such an encouraging verse in the story of joseph revelation 21 page 1041 revelation 21 and we're in heaven okay the, the heaven heaven in the future and it's pictured of this beautiful city it's not a literal description of what heaven's going to be like but it's a symbolic picture there's gates and streets of gold all sorts of things like that and on these 12 gates what do we see Revelation 21, verse 12. This city had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were, subscri- were inscribed. Okay, The gates of heaven have Judah, the guy who slept with his daughter-in-law. Reuben carved on another gate, slept with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi, the mass murderers. Dad, Naphtali, Dan, Asher, who betrayed and sold their brother and saving. They are the gates of heaven. And that is good news for you and me. If you're not a Christian, I hope you feel very welcome with us this morning. But do you see that, you, you, that the way to become a Christian, like the way into heaven, is not to become a perfect person. God is not interested in perfect people because there are none. Rather, it is to come to Jesus for forgiveness. He offers completely free forgiveness. Whatever you've done, Whatever those guilt words you hear, you just cringe, the names, the people, the places. There is forgiveness for you. And Christian, whatever guilt plagues you, it is not greater than the mercy of God. And the Puritan said, if God would only show mercy to those who deserve it, he would show mercy to none. Mercy, by its very nature, has to be shown to those who don't deserve it. God is merciful, and so he will fill heaven with people who he has carried through the trials and tests to make us more Christ-like. And he'll fill heaven with people who are as bad as murderers, adulterers, those who committed incest, betrayed their brothers into slavery, dishonoured their fathers and mothers. Heaven is built uh, on gates of grace because Christ's blood was shed for all. Let's pray.